Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Today, we're going to talk about contentment. Uh, It's a good thing. It's actually a godly thing. But the problem is a lot of people use contentment for being prematurely satisfied and not going after things you should go after. It's about people who just are phoning it in. That's, that's not what we want. We don't want premature satisfaction. That's phoning it in. But contentment, being happy, no matter what happens, that's a pretty cool thing. Today, I've got a, a really, really fun guest. He's fun because I've gotten to spend some time with him recently, and he's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun for me. So if he's a lot of fun for you, I don't know. I don't really care because I said a lot along this podcast about me. So it's fun for me, then it's great because it's for me. <laughs> the amazing uh, things this guy has done is pretty cool. His name is Joby Martin. He started out with a vision to attend medical school. He left it behind to become a student pastor. And then he accidentally, I want to find more about this, accidentally planted a church which has grown to reaching 15,000 people a weekend across seven sites and has been recognized among the fastest growing in the nation. You know, I don't, I don't, the whole pastor gig, I, I think Joby will be our second currently serving pastor we've ever had, second time. So took a million downloads to get our second pastor. So this is not like Pastors or Us podcast. In fact, some of you have been listening, you, you even are surprised this is even a faith podcast. You're actually even surprised I'm a pastor. Yes, I am. I know. I can be very annoying and unusual, but I am a pastor by day. I met this dude and we just we just hit it off. I mean, you've heard the phrase before, brother from another mother. That's literally what it felt like. Joby is pushing frontiers and he's going to push you to do the same. Here with us today, all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. Welcome to the Aggressive Life Joby Martin. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me, man. I, uh, I I love this podcast. I didn't know I was the only the second pastor, but I guess that's right. I, I've been listening. I think you you must have the only podcast that has interviewed N.T. Wright and Matthew McConaughey. That's got it. You got to be the only one. <laughs> and here you are wedged right in between them. Yeah, that's a good combo. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got a book we're going to get into. But first, got to tell you a true confession. I don't know if I said this to you when we were together. Uh, Joby and I met at a pastor's retreat. I know that sounds really boring. Oh, great, a pastor's retreat. That sounds just like what I want to do. But it was really great because the dudes there were really great. And the place we went was really great. And it was your church property— and let's just talk about, why don't you just tell a story about your, your unbelievable property that your church bought and the story behind it. The property most recently was known as Cabin Bluff. It was formed back in the like early 1800s as America's first hunting club by a bunch of really rich people, you know, like Carnegie, Rockefeller type folks. Um, for the last, I don't know, 70 years or so, it was a five-star quail hunting lodge. Uh, my church started doing a series of like retreats there years ago, and then the the folks that owned it, a bunch of paper companies owned it, and they wanted to get it off their books. And so this really bunch of hippies bought it, the Nature Conservancy, in order to save some endangered species that were on the property, uh, indigo snake, the some kind of turtle, and some kind of woodpecker. Thank God for the turtle and woodpecker. And so they wrote a bunch of easements on it so it can kind of only be used like it is now. And uh, 
they put it on the market and we made an offer for I think like 12% of the asking price. And long story short, after a couple of years, we're the only one left standing in line. And now our church owns this beautiful 3,200-acre property right on the intercoastal. It's got nine cabins. Uh, it's got a place to eat. It's got basketball courts. It's got golf course. And we run, last year we ran 2,200 folks from our church through there in discipleship kind of events. So I think the problem, the problem with adult discipleship is adults quit going to camp. And I think we breathe way too much air-conditioned air. And this is just an opportunity to get people out in the woods, turn down the noise of this world, and maybe they can tune into what their creator has for them. So that, that's what we use the place for. And then the thing that you were at, we also use it to bring pastors in that uh, just to get together, some of us just need a break, good time to be in the woods. So I, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible gift of God. It's utterly incredible. I, I went to the uh, shooting range and <laughs> I started hearing more of the story about when this place just turned the keys over to you, all the assets, everything on the property. I'm driving over to the, or being driven over to the Sporting Clay's place on top of one of your two F-350s that came in the deal that had a deck over the cab and four captain's chairs. When we get there, they open, and all of this stuff was part of your property. All was there. When you get there, they open up these boxes in the back of the truck, $11,000 shotguns that were included in the property. I was hunting a hog all weekend in tree stands that were there with feeders that were there with corn filled with a stinking barn and clay pigeons and center console Boats. It was. It was. It was. Dudes. It was un. It's unbelievable what you have there. And so here's my confession. Because I asked you. Remember the first question I asked you what that property was? Yeah, you asked me if I got any pushback. Yes. Did I tell you why I asked you that? Why is that? Uh, well, we bought 425 acres, which is kind of a big deal in Ohio, but not down where you guys are in the land of. Damn, that was Florida Georgia Line. Hey, we might get a little crazy now. Are you a Florida Georgia Line fan? Are you, oh, you live on the Florida Georgia Line. You got to like that band. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, for sure. Right. So anyway, it's 425 acres isn't a lot when you're comparing to the vast spaces you have down there. But it's a, you know, we thought this is awesome. Well, right when we had bought that property a few, few years ago, there was another property that was available and it was a little more built out. And we chose, or I chose, not to throw our hat in the ring and go out after it. And partially because our vision was literally camping. That was part of the part of it was was that. But then part of it was I thought, man, I just don't want to deal with some of the blowback of people thinking, oh, you're just trying to get your own private place or whatever. And and uh, and then when I saw how your place with buildings and structures afforded you flexibility for different ministry, I just felt like I actually I had a repentance exercise. That after the next afternoon, oh, it was the afternoon you and I had lunch together. I said, repentance exercise, where I looked at my life over the last two years, three years, and I said, God, there's a number of areas where I just have been passive or I haven't done the things I needed to do. I just, I just need to journal those and repent and tell you, sorry, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And your property and your boldness and your aggression just really inspired me, man. Well done. Well, thanks, bro. Well, I, I mean, I definitely want to have older, wiser people in my life that, you know, can point out blind spots and be helpfully critical and those kind of things. But I, I refuse to let small-minded folks stop me from doing what I think God has called us to do as a church. It does seem like there's an inordinate amount of small-minded people. I don't mean just in the church, in the country. Talk about that. Why do you think that is? And how do you see that? 
Look, man, both of you and I both pastor very large, fast-growing churches. I'm just telling you, the number of people, if we just walked in right now and said, okay, that's enough. We, we wouldn't use this language, but if we said, we're gonna take our foot off the gas and we're not gonna reach any more people, we're not gonna feed any more people, we're not gonna send missionaries around the world, we're just gonna take care of us. The average American says, that sounds great. And we have to war against that. It's, what, it's, it's the way you open the podcast. There is a contentment that Paul talks about that we lead, need to learn the secret of being content in every situation. But he was not content until the kingdom of God was here on earth. Those are two very different things. And most Americans, the air that we have been breathing our entire life is that of comfort and not stretching ourselves, which is crazy because the men and women that founded this country were the exact opposite. At great peril to their own lives, they were willing to take the risk so that we could live in this place. Yeah, it's really odd, Joby. There's no question the reason why America, in my mind, no question the reason why we are world dominators is because we took the cream of the cream from Europe. When you consider the pilgrims, the level of aggression and faithfulness and hopefulness and positive attitude and strength and rigor, it would have taken you to get on a boat with no comfort and just float along hoping that you land on a scraggy rock someplace and you get off and there's nothing to welcome you. No infrastructure, no governments, no safety net programs, no nothing, just raw land. And the people who flooded out of Europe is why Europe is languishing for many, in many ways because we scraped the cream of the crop in terms of entrepreneurs and go-getters and that's still affecting our culture today. And now we're getting to be a bit, I don't know, that, that entrepreneurial go-for-it spirit is, um, is in shorter supply probably than ever before in American history. Those folks, they were, they were hardcore people who were following their God. They weren't, they weren't people who, uh, well, all gods are the same or there isn't, there aren't any gods. They were, their faith propelled them to take risks. And yet we have in our churches today, our faith is propelling me to justify why I'm not stepping out, to justify why I should just be satisfied and not make an aggressive move. Yeah, the, the most commanded thing in the Bible is don't be afraid. Think about that. The most commanded thing. It's a, in, the, in the King James, there's some version of don't be afraid 366 times. That's one for every day of the year, including leap year. And I think because the opposite of faith is not doubt. So if you got all kind of questions and unanswered, what about this and that and the other? Cool, man, you can make a great disciple. Just pick up your doubts, follow after Jesus. But the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is fear because fear paralyzes and faith produces action. Look at the times that the disciples got in trouble. It's not because they had questions. They had all kinds of questions. It's when they were paralyzed by fear and didn't do anything. That's when they were in trouble. So you say you accidentally became a church planter. Yeah. How, does that, how does that happen? Does that have, have anything to do with lack of fear? Uh, I was a youth pastor and loving it, did that for 15 years, was kind of minding my own business. And then the church I was at started a service that started at 1122 on Sunday mornings. And somehow I, got in, I found myself in charge of it. And what was great is, man, it didn't have to work. So I just, me and my buddy said, what if we did a service like the one we always wanted to attend? And then God breathed on it and it blew up and it outgrew our whole church. And then my senior pastor, a guy named Jerry Sweat, best Christian I've ever met in my life, with a lot of humility and grace said, why don't you plant a church? And so it was really his idea, not mine. 
And so I Googled it. I didn't even know that was a thing, man, you know? And then uh, started getting around some folks. And then and then in 2012, we planted the Church of 1122. And and he didn't want to just keep all those folks in his own church. That That's pretty that's pretty incredible. What was his thought process, do you, th- do you think, there? He's just a kingdom-minded dude, man. I'm telling you. Honestly, Brian, he is one of the greatest human beings I have ever met in my life. He gets up in the morning, he prays, reads his Bible, and then he acts like it all day. He just does. Mm -hmm. And so he was, you know, everybody wants to be kingdom-minded, but he actually is. And so he, in fact, he let us stay at his church for a year and a half while I built a team, while I found a location to move into, while we raised money, while we did all those kind of things. And then with his blessing, launched us. So it was it was way more like a dad sending a kid to college than it was any kind of competitiveness or anything like that. Yeah, kingdom minded is one thing, but kingdom kingdom acted is another thing. We can think kingdom thoughts all the time, but when we when you start talking about giving up your rights, giving up potential growth streams, giving up potential you know younger folks like he did, that's that's really impressive. Is he still in ministry right now? Oh, for sure. And the church that we planted out of is is doing great. Oh, isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's, totally. That's great. That's exactly how God would work. So you find yourself as a as a church planter. I mean, you you, you get launched out from there, and then what? What's the, what have been some of the ups and downs that you've had to struggle with over the last several years? Uh, a lot of ups and all the things that you would measure in regards to being the lead pastor of a church. You know, we've grown, like you said, to uh, eight campuses now. Two of those are in prisons. So that was cool. We, we've got two campuses in prisons. We do full church in these two prisons. That's pretty incredible. We did a, in fact, in one of the prisons, man, we did a baptism service, and I baptized 67 prisoners in a service. And my wow. favorite one, dude, this is crazy. This dude with a big swastika on his head, and on his forehead says F-U, the full word. And on the other side of his head, it says, if it ain't white, it ain't right. Okay, that's this dude has been attending services. He comes to salvation. When I baptize him, he walks out of the water. One of the head, like one of the main dudes and one of the gangs, the black gangs, this guy comes walking up. And these two brothers just hug in front of everybody in the prison. Mm. These two guys mm. that used to be mortal enemies against one another are now brothers in Christ and are literally hugging in front of all the, the hardest dudes you've ever met. So we've seen stuff like that, man. I would say the lows, I think leading through COVID, all of us that lead anything, we experienced some stuff that we've never experienced before, right? Because none of us have ever done that before. And it seemed to me like no matter what decision we made, it was three little bears, man. For some people, it wasn't enough. For some people, it was too much. And for a few people, it was just right. So th- there were some tough times there. You're a big um, outdoorsy guy, taming the wilds. This is some of the themes for your book that we'll, we'll get into. But when you, when you were dealing with all the leadership stuff at COVID, how are you in trying to remember, this is basically a frontier right now instead of just lamenting that things were so different and so crappy? I mean, how did you do with that, that whole mental attitude? I think the thing, that, the thing that I went back to is why did I get into this in the first place? It had nothing to do with the attendance numbers on weekends or how popular I was or whether people liked me or didn't like me. I mean, there was no internet when I started, so 
that's not why I got into it. I got into this thing so that one more person could come to Christ. That was it. And so I just decided very quickly, again, no matter what I did, some people thought it was good, a whole bunch of people thought it was bad, some people thought it was too much, some people not enough, it was all three little bears. So I just decided, God has called me to go in this direction, this is where I'm going, if you wanna come with me, come on, and if not, then I don't, that, I can't really do much for you. Do you find that that, you know, go for it attitude is polarizing to people, or do you find that people are attracted to that? Very few people are kind of in between. So the people that want to go for it, they go for it. And the people that that at least have this internal itch for the aggressive life, I feel like you can call call that into reality. But this Jesus that that I follow, that's one aggressive leader. I mean, he calls you to lay down your life. He calls you to go for it all. The Apostle Paul says he wants to pour his life out. And so there's a bunch of people that looked at that and said, man, that's too much. I ain't going. Okay, fine. But those that are ready to sign up and go, man, I feel like it it calls them into a level of courage that oftentimes they did not even know existed inside of them. When I was in high school, I was uh, looking to enlist in the Marines, mainly because I was trying to rebel against my parents who wanted me to get a college education. So I was looking to go in the Marines or in the services, and I made my rounds and checked out all the different uh, branches. And I wanted to go to the Marines because the Marine guy, he said, look, he said, look, man, you know, Air Force, it's basically just like civilian training. It's no big deal. Army, there's six weeks. But man, if you want the toughest thing you can imagine, it's the Marines, it's 11 weeks, it's old school. You're going to be yelled at. You're going to be pushed. When you come out of it, you're going to be different. I was like, okay, I want that one. <laughs> that, that, that's the one I want. And uh, I find that we don't really do that much in churches. We say, look, we have a good kids program for you. Look, we have some really cool music, don't we? Look, we have a, we have a pastor who's very nice and well-read. Instead of leading with the, yeah, you're going to come here and you're going you're gonna to have some really difficult asks made of you. There's a, there's a whole recruiting illustration that you use as well, isn't there? Yeah, and this, this has a lot to do with the, the heartbeat of who we are as 1122. See, Brian, I think that over the last bunch of like 10 or 12 years or so or whatever, the quote-unquote seeker has changed. I think if you get your average whatever person shows up at the church, first of all, they showed up at the church. And I think they are saying, all right, man, just give me the goods. What are you asking me to sign up for? Don't water it down. Just tell me. And so that's what we do. We call people to that kind of sacrificial life. And so where I got it from was when I was in high school 100 years ago, remember they would do these assemblies where the branches of service would come and actually recruit during the day at high school. Now, people would lose their minds today. I don't know how they think they're still free, but (laughs) anyway. Right. And and so it's just like you said, Air Force guy. And listen, man, God bless all the services, but the Air Force guy. They're all necessary. And anyone who's served in any one of those forces, you've done more than I have because I haven't been in any of them. Yeah, and without dudes like men and women like you, guys like me and you don't have jobs. We can't stand up and herald the good news of the gospel without men and women willing to lay down their lives on that wall. So we need them. But that day in high school, the Air Force guy goes first and he gives his spiel. And just like you said, he's like, man, listen, you need to be in the Air Force. It's great. You stay in a nice apartment. 
you work nine to five, it's great. The the Navy guy goes next and he's like, nah, man, you need to go in the Navy because Uncle Sam will take you on his dime places you're never going to be able to go for the rest of your life. The Army guy's like, nope, we'll teach you a skill so you can make some money when you get out. The last guy to go was the Marine recruiter and the previous three guys went over their time. And so he looks around, he's like, well, they took up all my time and I've only got about two minutes. And then he slowly scans the bleachers and he says, but that's okay because there's probably only about two of you in this room that have what it takes to be a Marine. If you think you're one of the two, come see me. His line is out the door. I mean, everybody is like, that's what I want. So at our church, we call people to do some aggressive stuff. Like we sponsor, we work with Compassion International. We sponsored 14,000 Compassion Kids. And one weekend, instead of giving out bulletins, we gave out Compassion Packets, the picture uh, with the kid and the name and the information. And you can sponsor them for $38 a month. And we lined the back of the sanctuary with trash cans. And I said, all right, you can sponsor a kid or you can throw them in the trash. Because if you don't sponsor them, they're eating out of the trash. And man, people got mad and they cried. And we sponsored every single kid that weekend. And people get mad. They're like, I ain't coming anymore. And they leave for six days. And then they get like six of their friends and they come back and be like, you got to listen to this. Or we tell our folks, you got three years to go on a mission trip or find another church. Mm. Now, mathematically, I can't even take everybody on a trip. But Jesus discipled his guys for three years and they said, all right, it's up to you to tell the rest of the world now. I'm out of here. And so we do those kinds of things, just calling what God has put in these men and women to step out by faith and, 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 and be aggressive. Take a chance. Go for it. Faith is an adventure, and we're not treating it that way. We're, we're treating it like it's a set of beliefs or it's a, you know, a, just a way to have an emotional experience as you, as you stream some latest worship thing on YouTube that has 20 million views. All those things are fine, but it's an adventure, man. It should push you, and if it's not pushing you, then you're probably not aware of the God who's above and beyond you because that's what he does. He calls us to be like him, not to just become a better version of ourselves. And if everything God tells you to do makes sense to you and is comfortable, then I think you're just worshiping you. Because of course the God of the universe would have some things to say that I either don't understand or don't agree with. Of course he does because he is God and I am not. I think the greatest advice in all the Bible is in John chapter two. Jesus is at a party, so that might be new news to some people, right? He was at a party and they ran out of wine. And Mary, his mama, comes to him and says, uh, son, they've run out of wine. And he says something that nobody, no husband should ever quote to his wife, but he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? So don't ever say that out of context. And then Jesus, you know, spoiler alert, is going to get more wine. He's gonna make more wine. So you hear that, Baptist? He's gonna make more wine. But here's the thing that happens, man. Mary says to the servants, I think the best advice, do whatever it is he tells you to do. And then the things that he tells them to do are crazy, bro. It's like six things that are crazy. Go get the stone jars, fill them up with water, get a ladle, dip some out. And by the way, the stone jars would have been where people would have been washing their hands for like three or four days. This is nasty water. Mm. Dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. Now, none of that makes any sense. But, When they did it by faith, even though it didn't make sense, little did they know there was a miracle hanging on the other end of a a step of obedience. So do whatever he tells you to do, man. It didn't make any sense for me to leave the church I was at to take a risk to plant a new church. Doesn't make any sense. There's plenty of churches in Jacksonville. But I felt like that's what he told me to do. And little did I know that God would breathe on it and we would be doing this. 
it's a big shift from building a church, building an organization, which you've done, to being able to write a book that is coherent and sells copies. How's that process been for you? Well, one of God's great graces is he sent a dude into my life named Charles Martin. No relation. Charles is a deacon at our church. He's one of my best buddies. We bow hunt together all the time, all over the place. And uh, he's also a New York Times bestselling author. He's written like 20-something novels. And um, I asked him if he would help me write it. On Friday mornings, we would go out into the woods, and Charles and I would bow hunt in the morning. Then we would go to our property and go into one of the cabins, build a big fire. And basically, I would preach him the content. Mm. And he would ask me about 100 questions because he's been coming to our church for almost 10 years. That's good. And he'd be like, tell me this story or tell me how you met Gretchen or, you know, because he kind of knows all the stories. And then he would help me take it from page to stage or from stage to page. And then he would put it all down, give it back to me. We edited it together. So, and bro, I'm going to tell you, it was, um, well, I listen to this podcast a lot. So I know all about man camp and I know that you talk about being aggressive means that men can get together and be honest and open and vulnerable. And that that's an aggressive life for men. It's not just like ax throwing and building fires. And so it was like a two-man discipleship group, just me and him. There were tears and prayers. And uh, I mean, it was just good for my soul just to go through the process. The fact that it has been helpful to disciple people is just even better. Yeah, the book writing thing for me has been very, very mixed. Uh, I've I've done a few... We're working on another one. It's probably not that too dissimilar from what you're talking about, what I do now. I've got Dirt in here. Dirt's my kind of right-hand guy. He does just a lot of great stuff. He does the podcast and also listens to things I say. He's tried in every teaching, and then he tries to think what it's like to be in book form. And and I think the writing, now that I got him around, it's kind of fun doing that with him. And actually, same thing. He puts it down on paper, and then I go over it and add to it subtract from it, all that stuff. But man, once you start getting with publishers, that's where I've been bogged down. How do, How's that gone with you, just working inside the machinery of the publishing house? We were able to like interview a whole bunch of publishing companies or whatever. And there was one particular editor that was, she was on this Zoom call and I don't know what it was about her. Um, she, she lives in New York, has always lived in New York. I, I, I got nothing in common with that. I'm in the woods all the time, you know, grew up in the South. But whatever it was about her demeanor and and what she was saying about the idea, I just thought that's who I want to work with, hmm. that girl. And and so the company she's with, that's fine. We'll go with them. And um, and I felt like it was like a nudge of God. Like that's who, you, and, and so we went with it. And bro, she has been nothing but great. The book is called, by the way, If the Tomb is Empty. Tell us, give us the 30,000-foot view. Give us the stump speech on what what If the Tomb is Empty is about. Yeah, man, we trace seven mountains from Mount Moriah to Mount Calvary, and which most Christians don't even know that those are the same mountains. The mountain that Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice is the mountain that Jesus went up and gave his life for us. And basically, we just trace the gospel through these seven mountains, Old Testament and New Testament, that end in Mount Calvary, and this mountain held a tomb, but the tomb couldn't hold a body. And pretty much all of our lives are a series of mountaintops and valleys. And God often demonstrates his glory up on the mountain and his grace and mercy down in the valley. But it all points to the empty tomb. And the title came from just a phrase that I find myself saying at church, pastoring for the last 10 years here, 
and I'm sure you hear this all the time too, Brian, but people come up to me and say, Pastor, I, I'm in an impossible situation. Like the my medical situation, my financial situation, my marriage is dead, whatever it is. And then one day it just kind of fell out of my mouth. And I was like, look, man, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. If God can breathe new life into his dead son and he can walk out of the grave, then surely he can breathe new life into your marriage. Or if he controls all things, then he can he can handle your cancer, I promise. And it may or may not go the way you want it to go, but if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Yeah, that's not just a philosophical statement. Romans says the same spirit who gave life to his body, raised from the dead, can give life to yours as well. That's that's fact. Absolutely true. That's totally true. I wish that there was a a Christian symbol that was an empty tomb. You know, I know. I know. I, mean, I thought about cr- that. The cross is wonderful because it, it is wonderful. It what gives it's what gives me salvation. Jesus has died on the cross for me, so I don't have to die before God anymore. He's given me it. it's it's wonderful, but it's just so watered down. It's a fashion statement, and many people don't even understand what the cross is. I wish there was something of an empty tomb. I've thought about what would it be a zero, like in the mouth of a tomb, but nothing in there. Would it be because that's really who we are. We're not just people who are supposed to stare at emaciated Jesus who's got nails in his hands and wrists all day. The, he, he, Jesus said, it is finished. I was reading about my Bible reading today. He said, it is finished. What's finished is us staring at him on the, on the cross as well. We need to be more people of resurrection. I wish there was some symbol. You have any thoughts as to why we as believers have fixated on the cross instead of the empty tomb? Well, I think I think your average believer only understands or believes like half of the gospel. Like if you if you ask your average church person, if you were to die tonight and you're standing before Jesus and he says, Why would you let you into my heaven? Most people would say, Because you died on the cross for my sins, which is true. It's just not the complete truth. Not only did he die on the cross for your sins, which takes away your sin, but he was also resurrected from the grave. And because of that, because he is alive, we can be alive in him. And so not only has he wiped the slate clean, but he has given us his perfect life, or the theological terminology would be, he's imputed us with his righteousness, which is a really big deal. The illustration I use all the time is, Brian, imagine that you were like $30 trillion in debt, can you imagine? And you go to the bank and you say, I can never pay this off. Like, if I live 10 lifetimes, I can't pay it off. Well, if the president of the bank says, well, I have grace and mercy for you, I'm gonna forgive your debt. You would be grateful for sure, but if he did that, if he, if he forgave, forgave your debt, when you left the bank, you would be broke and, mm. and you would have to get to work to earn a living, mm. all right? That is not the gospel. Mm. The gospel would be that you went to the banker and said, I can't pay this off. And he says, I'm gonna wipe your slate clean. I'm gonna cancel your debt. And I'm gonna adopt you as my own kid. And here's the debit card to the bank. All that I have is yours. That's the fullness of the gospel. This is love. Not that we love him, but he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sin and has imputed us with his righteousness. That matters. This means that we serve a good dad. He loves his kids. He delights over us. And if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Boy, that's a great word. I've not heard that illustration before, but I promise you everybody at Crossroads will be hearing it very soon. Yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't it, make it up either. And it will be mine. I, <laughs> you it know, should been, be. I've been thinking for a long time. I've always thought to myself, and now I'm going to tell you all. That's, that's kind of how, how I'll bring it up. But it's interesting. You're right. That is the gospel. And I think a lot of us who are believers are okay with just enough God 
to get us back to break even, and then we've really got to earn it on our own. We're, we're okay with just enough God to get me over my feelings of guilt, but really, if I'm going to go anywhere in life, it's really going to be only with my own will, and that that is not the way of Jesus. No way, man, no way. I mean, again, he adopts us, he changes our name, we're a co-heir with him, all that he has is available to us. Now, we've seen some dudes uh, do some really terrible things with that, you know, and try to treat God like a genie, you know, so that we can just get cash and prizes on this side of eternity, and that's not what we're talking about either, man. But he is a good dad that wants to bless his kids. Yeah, he is. How has your recent hunting fixation tied into this? Recent? How long have you been a hunter? <laughs> I, I grew up in it, for sure. Oh, you have? I so mean, it's not recent. I, no, I mean, I got a beagle puppy to hunt rabbits when I was in the first grade and a 410 shotgun then. So that's just how yeah. my people grew up. All these people who have amazing childhoods, you really piss me off. I mean, I, I, I mean, <laughs> well, there were some highs and lows for sure. <laughs> I mean, I meet people like, well, I grew up riding dirt bikes. I'm like, I don't have a dirt bike. Well, I had a beagle and went coon hunting. I, I didn't, I didn't have a beagle. I didn't, you know, jealous. When you, when you think about kind of that world, you're co- sort of a, a rugged, a rugged guy, not sort of, you are a rugged guy. who has got a lot of sort of stereotypical masculine hobbies and traits when you start thinking about how the tomb is empty and all of the gospel, do you see those things becoming one or do you see it as, well, this is my sort of recreation life that just keeps me fresh for this, all of the, uh, you know, all the Jesus and ministry stuff and this theological reflection you're giving me? How, how do you, how, do those fit together or do they not fit together and they shouldn't fit together? What, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think this idea of like the compartmentalized life is a really dangerous Western idea that we need to reject as G- if you're a Jesus follower. I mean, the most prayed prayer in the Bible would be the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, all of you should worship the one true God. And that, you know, the word integrity comes from the word integer, which just means one. There's only one of you. You don't have like an online life and a church life and a party life and a family life. You just got one life and you should be loving him with all of it. In fact, I think in Hebrew, there's no word for spiritual. If you would ask Jesus in the first century, how's your spiritual life? He'd say, oh, it's great. I got up this morning and I ate breakfast to the glory of God. And then I took a long walk for the glory of God. And then I read the scriptures to the glory of God. And I went to the temple to the glory of God. And then I said, hey, to a kid. So he would say, my one and only life is for the one and only God. So for me, I don't know, man. I just hear him better in the woods. It's good for my soul. In fact, if I go too long and I don't get into the woods, my wife is like, you should probably go hunting because you're just a better human, a better dad, and a better husband when you've been in this rhythm when you're in the woods. And so I don't, and that, that, that thing may be different from people. It might be a motorcycle ride or, a, you know, playing golf or whatever it is. But in fact, Brian, I think one of the reasons, man, a bunch of the guys now that aren't making it, one, one of the things, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, bunch of guys in ministry, man, they don't have like a legit healthy hobby. Right. And so as dumb as this sounds, like if you're not a hunter, this won't make any sense to you. But this Friday, I'm going turkey hunting at our place. And I'm pretty sure I know where a gobbler is roosted. And that gets me all like going in 
and I know it's silly if you're not a turkey hunter, but it can steal my mind away so that I'm not thinking about church all the time. And I think dudes that are in high pressure situations that have to perform a lot, those kind of things, you need a legit healthy hobby because what I've found is guys are gonna find something to get that zing and oftentimes it's in things that aren't healthy. Like they drink too much or they got some weird gambling yeah. thing or they're talking to somebody that's not their wife or whatever. And so I have found that that having that kind of almost obsession is is has been really healthy for the rhythms of my own life. I've uh, I, I don't know if we've talked about this or not on the grass of life um, before, but I did a I've been doing a deep dive whenever somebody crashes and burns a ministry, you know. And when you get to have churches your size, our size, you pretty much know everybody, or you know somebody who knows somebody, and you can really get the story. And so, one of my really sick hobbies is doing investigation on why somebody crashed. Not because I have some need to gossip and find out juice on somebody, but because I'm kind of scared to death and never happens where I think, oh my gosh, am I next? When, when, when's it gonna happen with me? I thought this person really had life together. Obviously not. So I want to dig in and figure out why. And I found there's two things in every situation again and again and again. Two things, always the same two. There may be others as well, but these two things. It's not like they gave up having their time with God in the morning. They may have, but these are two things. One you just mentioned was they didn't have a life-giving hobby. Yep. And number two is lack of deep friendships inside the church, not outside the church, inside the church, every single time. So when I'm talking with a guy like you, I'm going, man, I'm gonna go the distance with you. Whenever I'm done, I'm not saying you're gonna go longer than me, I'm gonna go longer, but I know I'm talking with a brother who's not gonna disqualify himself because you got both those. You you have a friend inside the church, you're working with to write your book inside the church, you're hunting with inside the church, and you got hobbies. So, man, a fan of yours, way to go. Yeah, it's, it's, especially as pastors, man, you better have some, like, I mean, real, friends, like people better love you more than they love what you think about them and be willing to tell you when you're being an a-hole to your wife. The only other thing I would add to that is, man, whatever you call it in your in your ecclesiology, but you need some local eldership that, you, that some people in your life that you report to that can tell you no. Who That's rep- really important. Who report to you and see you at least every week. This whole idea of having your elders or your advisory things, which are these paid guns of people who don't live in your city, dudes, oh, weird. They need to, weird. They need to see. They need to see your face towards your wife. They need to hear the tone of your voice towards your children. They need to see what you look like in social situations when things don't yes. go your way. Yes, that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand that whole move by some churches that even start that way. They start with that philosophy. It's just it's just weird, unbiblical, and unhealthy. I, I hate to judge what somebody else's structure is, but I think we're seeing enough of these folks who are crashing, guys like you and I know, they just don't, they don't have a safety net. They don't have the accountability of people who see them and know them. It's just, it's just a bummer, man. Yeah. Well, we're getting kind of into the weeds here on church stuff. We don't do that very often. It's very rarely... You know, we got somebody who's got your track record and mentality. So let's just stay there. Let's just stay in the church theme for a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, especially for those of our listeners who really aren't part of church. I kind of like that they're hearing a pastor they can respect who's not talking pastor speak. So let me dig in a little bit. Um, sermon prep. Every week, you and I, we've got to give a report 
a written report given verbally to a brand new audience every single week. It, it'd be like, I tell people I know who Procter & Gamble, it'd be like every single week you had to have a new formulation for Tide soap. Like it's just, you just keep doing the same thing. It was, it's new every single week. It can be a bear to bear up with sermon preparation when every week it's all about whether or not you perform for the church or not. How do you deal with it? What's your tips? Uh, hey man, the pressure is real for sure, right? I mean, every time some kind of, poll comes out about people's number one fear, public speaking is always at the top of the list. And this is what God has called me and you into. And so for us, our first service of the weekend is on Thursday night, man. So I preach every four days. And, and um, but I mean, I love it. I feel like I'm called to it. And Sunday nights where I go to bed, I read, read over to the text that I'm gonna preach for the next week. And then Monday morning, I go into the woods. And the first thing I do is pray, God, they're your sheep. They're not my sheep. You're the chief shepherd. I'm an under shepherd. And then somebody else is going to take my place one day. What do you want to say to your people? And then I just do my best to just try to open up God's word and say, this is what it says. This is what it means. This is what you should do. I basically ask three questions. What, so what, and now what? And then somehow God gives me a sermon, which is really, it's got one of God's great graces in my life. He does not owe me a sermon. I'm just trying to, preach sermons that the average dude in Jacksonville can grab onto, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're brand new and kind of kicking the tires on this whole Jesus thing, that I, I think you can do both. I think people can both discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. How far in advance are you working on sermon prep and knowing what you're going to do on a specific weekend? Uh, I, I'm about a year out, and just in regards of like, here's the sermon series, here's the primary text, and here's the bottom line or direction, and then I'm week of in the actual preparing of it. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to have like two or three done. If I do that, I'll have this like Franken sermon of all three of them. I'll say everything I know in the first week, if that makes sense. So right now yep. we're in a series on the book of Psalms, and so it's just like I know what all the Psalms that we're preaching are. And I know the general direction, but I'm weak of, because I got to marinate in it. I got to sit in it. You know, I'm in Psalm 14 this week, and it's just wearing me out, man. It is a source of dependency where you just kind of hit the refresh button every week. And But that's also part of why I'm, I'm doing less weekends than I probably would have ever thought of before. I'm just, I'm, I'm not preaching as much as I was before because— um, Man, it just wears you out, man. It just it just just crushes you. At least at least it does me. And I want to have some other people who are kind of trained up and going. How, how many weekends a week a year are you doing right now? Last year, just what was I doing? JPS looked at this. I think I was like 30, 28, 30, something like that. I heard that. I was like, that's all. <laughs> I'm, it feels like it's a lot more than that, but that's what I'm hitting right now. How how are you on that? Uh, I think we're just in a little different place right now. Um, we just opened a new building too a year ago, so that that influences it for me. Yeah. But uh, I I do I do about forty two a year right now, but my goal is over the next three or four years to dial it down to about thirty seven, thirty eight. Because I also need some time. Something that people that don't work at church don't really think about. Like take a guy like you. Okay, not only. I mean, you're like the the CEO leader of this big old organization with hundreds of staff and tens of millions of dollars of resources. And you're the guy cranking out like the the sermons every weekend. 
It's like owning the label and writing the songs. Who does that, you know? And so it's re- I think it's really helpful to have a bunch of weeks in there where you can work on it because you're not working in it. And currently, I don't have that, which I need to. So over the next few years, I want to dial it down from 42 down to like, you know, 37, 38, something like that. When it comes to leading that infrastructure of hundreds of staff, what have you have you learned about being a leader um, of an organization? What are you doing that we might want to consider doing ourselves? Uh, I think clarity and consistency are two of the best things you can do for your people. So we are just real clear about the vision. We're even real clear about, like, I want to make some decisions that make other decisions. So people don't have to determine or prioritize, is this more important or is that more important? Just at the beginning of the year, I say, this is what we're doing. Here are all skate events. Whatever you do, be it this stuff. Don't, you know, you can pick 48 other weeks to have vacation and those kind of things. Here are the big bucket events. Here are the big rocks. Here's what we're doing. And then just to be consistent. One of the things, because of our, because there's so many great churches, man, I think one of the worst things you can do is go to a conference and then come home and change every time you go to the next conference and then and then do what that church is doing. Now, for sure, we should emulate some folks, right, and learn from folks, for sure. But Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And so the more you can clarify and the more consistent you can be, especially the bigger you get, it, it really matters a bunch. I mean— if you take a big old ship that's going really, really fast and don't warn everybody you're going to take a turn, you're going to throw a whole bunch of people off because mm-hmm. they're not locked in for that turn. So that matters a ton. Yeah, that's a good word. All right. <clears throat> we come to time when we're going to do the lightning round. Lightning round, I'm going to give you a topic, and you've got to answer it in one or two sentences. Answer it like a bolt of lightning. <laughs> Speaking of lightning, before I do this, if I, if I told you what happened when I was uh, hunting a hog on your on your property, when I was up oh, there for that, I heard. Oh, you did it's hear? Like the what? nastiest storm ever came through. You yeah, wanted to stay out there? You crazy? <laughs> I heard that you got in the stand, and then the lightning was striking, and it, and they were like, "We're coming to get you," and you said, "No, I'm good. I'll just I'll wait it out." <laughs> <laughs> I was like for a hog. Uh, I got up. I got up. Uh, we were up uh, late the night, the night before. You know, having some drinks, having a good old time, and then I uh, we said, "Okay, five thirty, we're gonna meet." Well, I'm the only one who showed up at five thirty. Uh, <laughs> everyone else said, "Oh, raining." I'm not sitting in a thing on rain. You know, so I get out there. I, I had this massive thing in my mind about a decade ago right. where I was like, "Wait a minute, my body's wet when I'm naked in the shower." My clothes are wet when it's in the washing machine. Put them together, and you should have a normal person in rain. It shouldn't be that big of a deal, right? So I just, it doesn't sure. bother me. But I'm up on that top of that deal, and and I mean, it's like, it is coming, yeah. it is coming down, and I could feel the 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 the, the tray the tree swaying, going back and forth. It's my last morning. I'm not, I'm not giving up, right? And I'm going, wait a minute. Metal structures 25 feet in the air <laughs> with lightning. Maybe not good, but I went, I don't know. I mean, this thing has been here for years. Lightning's never struck it. Right. I, just because I'm on top of it doesn't mean it's going to increase the likelihood. And then your, your guy came down to pick me up. And I'm like, who are you? Get out, move, leave, leave. Yeah. Can you imagine if, if the story, yeah, the church of 1122 kills Brian Tome in a <laughs> hunting accident. 
Yeah, we'd be done. <laughs> There'd be a documentary about us. Oh, uh, it was it was awesome. It was it was it was really great. Uh, as an aside, those of you who aren't hunters, how about these statistics? They were letting me hog hunt on their property. Hogs have three litters a year. Three litters a year. By the time they're on the third letter, the litter, the first litter is having babies. So if you want to decrease the size of the hog pig population by one, you got to kill 25 hogs. That's crazy. Correct. Correct. It's an infestation. Dag. All right. Okay. Anyway, back to lightning round. Here we go. Lightning round. Most aggressive move you're making right now. Um, planting three campuses in one year. Wow, that is aggressive. Makes me feel like a weenie boy. That's amazing. You're doing three in one year. Well done. Yes, sir. <sighs> See, it's the problem, dirt. I always give people the rules for lightning round, and then these people say interesting things. I want to talk about more. So, what are the challenges it's you're your finding? Podcast. Yeah, it is my podcast. What are the challenges you're finding with three in one year? Uh, I know a lot of folks think, well, yeah, if your church is big enough, you can just do big things. It's not stressful at all. It's, it is stressful. So, what's the? What are some of the things you're doing to be able to do that? Well, I mean, it's always the same thing, man. It's people, money, time. You know, uh, inflation is killing us. When we were planning this. Now, construction costs have gone up 40, 45%. That matters. Um, you always, you know, when we when we launch new campuses, we send out our best leaders. And when you do that back to back to back, it can get really thin. And it takes time to make disciples. It takes time to train up leaders. And so those are some of the things. Opportunity is not the problem right now. People showing up to church, at, our, at least in our church, is not the problem. We have we have thousands of people in these pockets that drive 45 minutes to come to one of our campuses, and we're trying to come to them. But just volunteers, people, finances, that's it. But all of those, all of those problems are solvable, man. Yeah, that's great. Keep pushing. Best advice you've ever gotten? John 2.5, do whatever he tells you to do. That's what Mary said to the servants. Favorite piece of hunting or outdoor gear? Uh, Matthew's bow with a Garmin sight. I got one of those sights that you can, when you draw, it ranges it and it drops a pin to where the range is. It's the, it's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Garmin does that. Cause I've got that on my rifle, Sig Sauer, the BDX system. This is a different yeah. one, huh? Yeah, this is like, so you draw back, you hit this button, put the dot on whatever you're shooting. It gives you the range and then it drops the pin where you are to shoot. Because, you know, if you bow hunt, if there's a deer at 23 yards and you range it and then you draw and he bounds twice, then you're like, yeah, where'd he go? 30, 33? You're just guessing. Not with this one. You just hit the button again and it redrops the pin and then you shoot. I could shoot out to like 95 yards with my compound bow now. 95 yards? I don't know if I'd shoot at an animal at that, but I shoot up to 100 at targets all the time now. Dag. It's awesome. That's impressive. Best wisdom for recognizing the next frontier you should take? If you could do anything for the glory of God and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would you do? And the moment you know the answer, the next question is, then why aren't you doing that? It's usually because you're afraid. So if you could do anything for the glory of God and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would you do? Ask that question. The answer to that is probably the next frontier you should take. Most aggressive move you're making as a husband or father right now? Father, I just came out of a meeting where I cleared my calendar on Friday nights for the next two years because my son is a 
varsity football players and starting free safety for Providence High School, and I'm not going to miss a game. That means I'm saying no to a bunch of book tour dates and a bunch of the conferences that we would all want to say yes to and some of my, my like the like famous churches and all that, but I'm not missing them, man, because you can't get those years back. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Any final push, uh, Joby, if someone wants to read your book or follow you, just let, just make it real easy for people to get your stuff. Uh, our church website is coe22.com. All the stuff is there. Put my name in Google. All of the social media things will pop up. You can buy If the Tomb is Empty at all the places where you can buy books. It's pretty easy. All right. Aggressive Life listeners, I really um, am thankful to share a friend with you. Uh, uh, Joby and I have become friends here over the last couple months, and um, it's just really good being able to have a talk with a friend and record it and have two things happening at the same time. So keep pushing, man. You're one of the people who pushes me. I love what you're doing. I love how you're not laying back. I, I love how you're a genuine guy who's just following Jesus and breaking out of stereotypes. You're you're an aggressive man and a friend. Thank you very much. Thanks, bro. It means a bunch. All right. Well, there you have it. I hope you got something from from today. You don't have to be you don't have to be a hunter. You don't have to be a church planter. What you gotta do is you gotta think differently. Thinking the way everybody else thinks will give you what everybody else has, which is normally depression, which is normally less than meeting your potential, which is normally an empty life. Find things that you want to do. Find things that God wants you to do and go after those. Don't put the limitations on yourself. Be who God has created you to be. Get out of your tomb. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.